Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast, sponsored by the IBCA. We are a global podcast that shares the passion for the coaching profession. You will hear the stories of coaches from all around the world. We are covering the profession in-game, outside of the game, and anything in between. As always, thank you for listening. We look forward to sharing the coaches' stories with you. All right, on today's episode, we are lucky to be joined by Gene Heinkamp, head boys basketball coach at Bennett Academy. Coach, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Coach, we like to start off with what we call the opening tip. It's just kind of a, a way for our guests to kind of talk about their journey. So if you kind of want to kind of talk through your journey in coaching, uh, maybe from the beginning up until now, and then um, kind of after your journey, just kind of give our listeners just a little bit of an insight into Bennett Boys basketball. Sure. I grew up on the north side of Chicago. And I went to St. Patrick High School where I played for some really good coaches. And I played for Max Curland, who many people know uh, was a great coach in the history of St. Pat's and and uh, went off to school, St. Norbert College. And when I came back, I was lucky enough that St. Pat's had an opening for a freshman coach. So I started uh, my career as the freshman coach for Max Curlin in his last year. So I just a young kid getting started, uh, thinking he had an idea of what he was doing, but uh, found out really quickly there was a lot more to it. Uh, I was very fortunate after Coach Curlin decided to retire that Coach Bailey ended up getting the job at St. Pat's, took the job. And uh, the next eight years, I worked under Coach Bailey, and I was his freshman coach, his sophomore coach, and I spent four years as a varsity assistant. So those were really important years for me in, in formation and coaching. Uh, after that experience, I ended up going to Nazareth Academy for three years, where I served as the head boys basketball coach, and that was a, a very, very rewarding experience as well. It was a, there were a lot of ups and downs, but it was uh, very rewarding. I got a chance to work with some great kids and some great people. And then after that, I went back to St. Pat's, for three years where I, I served as a varsity assistant. And uh, one year I actually did double duty. I was the varsity assistant and I coached the freshman team because the freshman coach wasn't able to do it at the last minute. So I did both. And that was, uh, that was very worthwhile as well. And in 2008, I was fortunate enough to get the, the Bennett Academy job. And I've been here since this is my 16th season. So I'm going into year 31 and uh, 16 of them have been here at Bennett. So it's uh it's been a great, great ride, it's, uh, one that I wouldn't trade for anything, and uh, you know, very fortunate to be where I'm at. So, Coach, you've been—I mean, you, your record speaks for itself. I think you have three and plus wins, uh, under hundred losses. But we wanted to talk to you about kind of sustaining that success, um, at you know, at, at Bennett. Um, so it's kind of multi-part part question. Um, first, like, what do you think some of the the keys were or uh the 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 cogs i guess to sustaining that success over the years well definitely the players i would start with with the players i've had a, a good fortune of coaching not only really talented players but kids who really bought in to the culture that they established you know i think a lot of times coaches get credit or you know try to establish something in reality we just guide it you know, the kids are the ones that actually are the ones that, that make it work um, and they've handed it down from one class to the next, and not necessarily even just with the emphasis on winning and losing, but just trying to do things a certain way. And, and I think there's a pride in that. And I think it exists to this day. And it started many years before I was here. And I think the tradition of uh, Bennett boys basketball goes back about 50 years and some really unbelievable coaches. Uh, but since I've been here, I've had some kids that have just really done a good job of passing it down from really one class to the next. And 
know, they, they, basketball wise, we're pretty straightforward with what we do. Um, but there's expectations that, uh, you know, people play together and we're unselfish. Uh, it's important. So I think that that that's going to, you know, exist to this day. And I really give credit to the kids for that. So let's take it a little bit further then, um, you know, as you've been going along, you know, kind of what part do your, your assistants play, your coaching staff, and then, you know, the, the parents and the administration play in sustaining accessible program, maybe not just where you are, but maybe what you think at, in general of how that kind of all works together to develop as much success as you've had. Well, the assistants are absolutely essential. There's no doubt about that. And I'm, uh, I've been lucky to get, have the ones that I have here at Bennett. Many of them have been with me the whole time here. You know, I think I've had three assistants that have been with me for all, all 15 years up to this point. And the continuity that's established is, uh, you know, very, very, not only helpful, it's essential. And, uh, you know, also though I trust those guys. There's a, a loyalty and a trust involved that we're all on the same page. You know, having been an assistant for a long time myself, you know, I, I, I really value the role of the assistant. You know, we would not be able to do the things uh, we're capable of as head coaches without really good assistance. And, you know, I think assistance, if you're going to have a, a, a program that hopefully is successful, the role of assistant is crucial and you have to have good people first and foremost. And then you have to have guys that are really committed and loyal. And, you know, I think I was able to be around those type of people when I was at St. Pat's as an assistant. And then here at Bennett and at Nazareth as well, I've been lucky to have people that have just really pushed the program forward. So, you know, we get a lot of credit and I guess sometimes the blame as well when it doesn't go well, but the assistants are really the backbone of, uh, of just about any good program in my opinion. So I, I am curious, just before we go on, because I, I think this is a, a great thing for our listeners, you know, having three assistants that have been there for all 15 years, you know, why do you think they have stayed that long? You know, Todd and I have talked to over 100 guests and very few can say, hey, I've had three assistants stay with me for 15 plus years. You know, what are maybe some things you would recommend to our listeners, maybe a young head coach to do to kind of keep those assistants around? Well, I think I've been really fortunate with the three assistants I'm referring to were here before I even got the job or the position. So I inherited them. And, you know, how lucky can you be to inherit three guys that stay with you and really buy in? It's, you know, whenever you have a transition, it's not always the easiest thing, especially if you're an assistant coach and they really bought in. So good people is number one, you know, good people and loyalty to the school and also to the head coach. You know, I think those things matter. You can you can teach uh, the basketball. You can teach the X and O. Uh, you know, you can teach the things that are, are essential or necessary. But those things, that the, the, the individual characteristics and the type of people that they are, you know, speak for themselves. I was lucky to inherit, you know, experienced basketball assistants. But uh, first and foremost, they're really good people. And I think if you surround yourself with good people and try to build a program or, you know, uh, maintain a program, I think that's absolutely crucial. Now, I think one thing I would say about our assistants, they're, they're very unselfish. We're trying to set up a, a selfless environment or unselfish. We're asking that of our kids. And I think our assistant coaches exemplify that as much as anything. So when you have adults that are willing for, you know, very little gain, you know, willing to, uh, to do those types of things, I think it makes it easier for the players to buy in sometimes when they have, maybe they get a little less than what they were hoping for. And I think, uh, again, maintaining that, consistency has been really, really important. Um, it's very demanding, as you guys know, the time away from their families. You know, there, there's a lot going on in everybody's individual life. So to keep somebody for 15 years is uh, really difficult to do. But I, I, you know, I can't be more appreciative of the guys that I've had. Um, and they are really have been the backbone of this program. 
So I wanted to kind of hit on um, your role when you were a varsity assistant, um, you know, for Coach Bailey, you know, what were some of your tasks? Maybe what you, what did you learn that he did for you as the head coach that maybe you do for your assistants? Um, Let's kind of start there. Well, coach is very empowering. You know, he allows you to do a lot of coaching. He actually demands it. You know, I think coach, uh, you know, he runs an unbelievable program. He knows how to, how to manage all aspects of a program. So I got a firsthand experience. really tutorial on, on those type of things. And I was able to take a lot of that with me uh, in this experience here, but things like game preparation, watching tape, learning how to prepare for opponents, practice coaching coach demands that he'll have multiple assistants in there. And, you know, we're all, we're all coaching at the same time. He doesn't want spectators in his program. You know, I think the, the other thing is that you learn, you know, how to, how to communicate with players. You know, I think that that's part of the role of an assistant getting back to your question is, you know, I, uh, you know, there's there's times where assistant coaches have to put their arm around a player that maybe the head coach is on, and you know, you're never going to uh, be contrary to the or contradict the message of the head coach. But sometimes they need to tell them it's all right. You know, let's let's get it cleaned up. Let's do it better the next time. And I think that's part of the role of an assistant. And I think the head coach would want that. I know I want that out of my assistants. Is that you know when I have somebody come out of a game, they made a mistake, and I'm on them. If my assistant coach is on them on the bench. That's not necessarily what I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody to be more positive or supportive. They don't have to contradict the message because that that's not what we're looking for. But I want them to reassure the player. And I think that's part of an assistant's job is to, is to, to you know, be able to play off the head coach to make sure that uh, your players are getting what, what they need. You know, I also think it's important for assistant coaches to put out fires, whether it's a varsity assistant or lower level assistant. Is You have to make a decision what needs to go to the head coach and what you can handle on your own. And I, you know, I know any assistant coach that makes my life easier, I'm, I'm very appreciative of, you know, and I think that's part of it. We're all working for the same thing. And it comes back to the loyalty that we were talking about. And it talks about trust and, and all these things with the type of people that you bring around. But I think I want my assistants to be active. I, you know, I, I want, I was allowed to be active when I was an assistant. I want my assistants to coach. I want them to take a, a major role in our program. And I want them to be uh, you know, people that the, not only our players respect, but our players are comfortable going to communicate with and have relationships with to the point that just makes it makes our program better. So I kind of, I, I always find this interesting and, and Todd and I love to tell people stories. When we started this during COVID, it was to tell coaches stories, you know, for you, when you were an assistant, when you, when you were that freshman coach, when you were that varsity assistant, how did you know, when did you get that moment that you were like, Hey, you know what, this is being a head coach is something I aspire to. Maybe it was when, you played for coach Curland even, but when, when did you kind of know, like, Hey, I, I really do want to be a head coach. And maybe these are the steps I need to take to get there. Probably when coach Bailey got the job, because it was something that I think he was, that he brought to us. You know, and I think that, that I think he, he kind of set the table for us to have a path to be able to do that. Like he would teach us things that he said, you're going to need when the time comes, when you get your opportunity. So we're able to take in all aspects of the program, but I think he really paid attention to, and if you look at the long line of assistants that he's had that have been head coach, I think the evidence is there that, you know, in his program, he's, he's doing a lot to foster the development of his assistants to allow them to have a chance to be head coaches. I'm not sure what the exact number is of us, but there are quite a few of us that are, that are out there. I had a little bit, even maybe even more of a, a benefit because I, uh, you know, I obviously coached for coach Curlin, but I also saw coach Bailey when he came in, there's a transition involved where maybe you're shifting what you run offensively and what you're doing defensively and different mannerisms and styles. So, 
know, I was part of that transition. I got to witness it. And when you, when you take over a job, you know, in both, uh, both jobs that I've had, you know, I've always, uh, I've always ha had a little bit of an idea from that experience as to some of the things that might be difficult and some of the things that, that might be a little easier and, you know, how to, how to go about that. I think, you know, you respect the tradition that you, you're walking into, but, uh, you know, you also, you know, you're also going to put your own stamp on it or have your own ideas and things that you want to change. So, you know, I think he did a really good job of, of uh, bringing that to us or bringing it to me at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I, again, I don't know that it was my complete, you know, my attention was completely paid to being a head coach, but as I went a few years through it and I really got the hang of it and I started to learn, you know, then it became something that uh, was, became more of something that I really, you know, was looking forward to doing. So before, before I turn it back over to Todd, I, I we have had now from uh, Coach Bailey, we now have had Coach Trendle, Coach Bailey himself, uh, his son, Coach uh, Serge Moro, and yourself. Um, and I, I know there's still more out there. There's Coach Ashla out there. There's definitely more out there. Why do you think from one tree there has been so many head coaches that quite frankly have all been very successful themselves you know you you have the joke uh you know the Nick Sabans and the Bill Belichicks of the world sometimes their their assistants turn out to not be great head coaches but you know from from your guys tree there there are so many and I talked to coach Bailey today why do you think there are so many that have gone on to be successful well, I think it starts with what we get at the program, you know, what coaches provided and what we, you know, it, it, when you coach at St. Pat's, it's you're all in, you know, it, it, it coach is very demanding. And I don't mean that in a negative way, just the opposite. If you were looking to learn, you know, you, you, you need to be all in. And if you're all in and uh, you know, there's opportunities that present themselves for you to learn the game, you know, things about how to run a program, things about, you know, teaching the game, you know, things that I was lucky enough to, to witness and be a part of. And I think that that holds true today. I I'm, might be the oldest of the the ones that you you know I'm I'm second in seniority in our conference right now and I was you know so I'm, we're talking about you know I started with coach 29 years ago you know I, um I, and I've been in this league as an assistant and a head coach for going into 31 years um but so I was like maybe a little bit at earlier stages but I'm sure the same thing holds true today when you look at some of the younger coaches that have gone out and and you know I it's it's fun to watch even though I didn't have a chance to work with many of them to see their success you know, you're all part of the same tree, you know, that they had similar experience to what you had in the same opportunities. And, you know, I feel fortunate to have had that path and I wouldn't trade being an assistant coach. I think sometimes people are in such a hurry to be a head coach that you miss out on opportunities to develop. Uh, but I wouldn't trade my path for anything. And, and seeing the other guys that have come after me, you know, be successful, uh, you know, something that's rewarding as well, even though, like I said, I may not have had the, uh, the good fortune to work with them. It's fun to see these guys do so well out on their own. Well, let's be honest. Sometimes assistant coach is good because you don't have to take all the heat either. Right? <laughs> you can go coach ball, and then you don't have to. You don't have to worry yeah. about it. You know what? I think about that a lot. I think about you know I, that might not be a bad way to end your career at some point. Is you don't have to deal with a lot of the organizational and some of the stuff off the court, and focusing just on the like you said on the basketball elements and dealing with the players. And you know, there's a, there's a part of that that I, that I miss from being an assistant. I also think it's easier to see the game when you're an assistant when you're coaching. You're not as much you know emotionally involved. And, you know, I think that I, I, I always hope that I did a good job in that in that role. And there's there's a time where maybe you go back to that and you know, the game slows down for you a little bit. And you're in that uh, advice role where you see things that maybe you're not seeing as a head coach. And, and uh, you know, I think that that's a, a fun part of being an assistant uh, 
where you're not trying to make every call and you're not worried about the officials and you're not worried about a lot of things. You're more worried about seeing the game. And I think assistants get a chance to do that. So, all right, we just talked about, you, you know, your time as an assistant. I want to talk about like, okay, the first time you're a head coach, right? Because I think we all know like, Okay, yeah, you're like, hey, I want to be a head coach. I want to be a head sure. coach. It's going to be great, right? And then all of a sudden you're a head coach and you're like, oh, well, there, I didn't think of this or I didn't think of that. Okay. So, um, you know, when you, you you took over your first head coaching stint, what are some of the things you learned about yourself, first of all, and then like just coaching in general and then building a program? Uh, I think it's basketball coaching is a humbling experience at some point, if not always, you know, once you think you have it, you have an idea, you know, you realize you're, uh, you're still trying to figure it out. Uh, that, that first experience was a great one for me because of the players that I got to deal with, we were transitioning into the suburban Catholic conference and, and, uh, we played a great schedule and I had kids that really bought in and, and gave everything that they could when they were out there playing. Um, you know, we didn't win a lot. And it's one of those things where I think one of the things I learned, is that you know, not always to assess success based on wins and losses. And, you know, I, I'm saying that after having some pretty good teams here, you know, it's one of those things where I think I learned that at an early age. I, I see some coaches that maybe are in districts that they just don't have a lot of, a lot of talent or maybe, you know, uh, one of those things that I, I, I see regularly or where maybe their just conference is just loaded and you see some great coaches. And I think that's, that's something that I really have an eye for is, is going to, you know, not necessarily paying attention to the win loss record and, those types of things, but more of, you know, guys getting players to play to their potential or guys doing things that are unique or doing some things to get guys to you watch them play. And you're, you know, you, you see things and you're like, you know, you're just really, really impressed. And there's, there's quite a few coaches like that out there. So I think getting back to your question, I, um, you know, I learned a lot of things that, that, you know, success is trying to, trying to build up to your potential. I, uh, you know, I think, I think, you know, sometimes here's another thing that I learned. You know, there's huge games on your schedule, regardless of your win-loss record. And I think sometimes people don't realize if you're, you know, maybe you have three or four wins in a conference and you're playing somebody that level, that game is as big to you as it, maybe a conference championship it would be to somebody else. And I think that, that part of the experience is understanding the importance to the kids. You know, and I think getting your kids to buy in and getting your kids to, to do the things you want them to do, you know, you, you need to appreciate those opportunities in those situations. So, you know, I, I learned a lot in that, in that first, uh, first job, that first opportunity, and I, first and foremost with the players, just I, I unbelievably appreciative of those players. I, I wouldn't be in this position today if it wasn't for those players in, in that, uh, in those three years. And then also, you know, just sometimes you can do the right things as players and you're six foot and you're blocking out a seven foot guy. It's, you know, it's just the game itself is not always, it's not always fair, not always, you know, it's one of those kind of things. And I, and I would say that our, uh, our players did a really good job of always competing and giving themselves a chance. Um, so, you know, going back on it, I, the experience was a great one. My, I think my record at that stop was 24 and 57. So I'm, I'm actually, I know that that's what the record was. So it's one of these things where, you know, uh, you learn a lot, but you're always grateful and appreciative for the experience. So I think it was, uh, you know, again, jobs are hard to come by. So it's one of those things where, you know, you always have to reassess, you know, one, one of the, is, is it a job that, you know, you might take a job and this wasn't my necessary experience, but I have, there's other people I see it might take a job where, you know, winning is going to be really, really tough, but they want to be head coaches. They want to get the experience. They want to have a chance to mold a team. They want to have a chance to make a difference in a lot of different ways. And, you know, it's, it's not always about winning or trying to get downstate. Sometimes there's, there's other factors and other goals that define success that may even be more important than that. 
Well, before we go, John gets the next question, I just wanted to comment, like, I coach, John and I coach at St. Vider on the girls' side in the East Suburban Catholic, right? Like, I, I encourage our listeners to 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 look at some of the East Suburban, like, you talked about big games, even in your conference games. East Suburban Catholic games are big games because, uh, you know, you talked about your record in conference and with all that, like, when I was at Vider, I don't think we ever won conference or even came close to you know, but we had success because we're playing those tough teams. And there's a lot of tough games oh. in the East Suburban Catholic Conference. I mean, it's a meat grinder. It really is. I, the boys side, like I said, it's all I've ever known you know, as a player and as a coach and 35 years combined. And and just the respect that I have for the, the programs, the schools first and foremost, but the programs and the coaches that have come through, much less the players. It's really, really competitive. And our league traditionally has been full of great coaches, really tough guys to compete against and but guys you learn from. And there's a, you know, a, a lot of camaraderie in our league, you know, coming, coming back through that. And if you look at the girls side, you know, you talk, you know, obviously you could talk about all the success on the, on the girls side as well. I mean, you've got state champions coming out of there. I, I don't know. I'm probably going to say this, quote this incorrectly, but I, I just I two or three state champions, I believe in the last few years. And if you look at the last 10 years, there's probably a lot more than that. So for sure. The quality of basketball being played, I think, both on the boys' side and the girls' side, is at at a really high level, and you know, it's a really enjoyable league to be a part of. So, I I had an interesting follow up, and and this just shows you that Todd and I have done a hundred plus episodes together because we our our minds were kind of in the same place. But you know, it's kind of unique, Coach. I don't think we've ever talked to another guest in the East Suburban. I believe there's about nine teams now, and you've coached at a third of them. So, you know, what, what have you noticed are maybe some common denominators between the three schools in that league? And maybe what are some of the the differences and and things you've learned in the different stops that's made you a better coach? That's a great question. Uh, First of all, all three schools that I've worked at, I've, you know, I've been very lucky. They're excellent schools and, you know, experienced the support of the administration and the staff. And I think that that makes it uh, much easier to, to work at those type of places. Um, as far as the differences, you know, our league is, uh, you know, it's, it's really competitive and not just in basketball. If you look at the conference, you know, we've got football state champs, we've got baseball state champs. You know, I think a lot of it depends on the school and, our, and the size of our schools are, you know, pretty much middle of the road type schools. You know, I, there's a couple that are, are, we have, I think, 12, 1250 in our, in our school, in that vicinity. And we're one of the larger schools in the conference. But if you look at the success, not just in, in uh, basketball, but in the other sports as well, I just think you have a lot of dedicated coaches. I think you have a school administrators and, you know, I think there's just a real pride in the, in the conference itself and the success in really all the sports, but as far as the various stops and what's, what's been different, I think every school is unique in itself, all three of them, they've all had, you know, uh, I've, experience great things and there's always challenges no matter where you're at but um you know again that's a really tough question to answer and and uh i think it's a really good one uh and again i think all the schools you you get to know all the other schools as well you don't know them as well as the ones you work at obviously but you know i just great respect for everybody that's in our league from administration down into really the coaching ranks so i i kind of wanted to hit on another unique perspective for you specifically you know, you you had this the the tenure at NAS where you learned the head coach and you learned a lot of valuable lessons to be a head coach, but then you returned to St. Pat's for a short time prior to going to Bennett. Kind of take our listeners maybe through maybe what were some things you learned in that experience? And then was it ever challenging to go from kind of like I'm the decision maker back to the suggester? No, especially because I I 
learned, I learned under coach Bailey, you know, I knew what I was getting, getting back into. I knew, you know, I think that, I think you hit, hit the, the, the appropriate word there, learn. I knew it was a chance for me to get back there and keep learning and to move forward and learn. I, and even in the three years that I was gone, coach is always evolving and the program is always evolving. So it wasn't that they weren't necessarily the same things that they were doing when I was there, even though I saw that, I saw some of the transition as a coach in the conference, I got a chance to learn a lot of new things and deal with different kids and be parts of really good teams. And some of the assistants that coach had there at the time too, also maybe a better coach. You get a chance to not just even coach, even though obviously we've talked about that at length, is some of the guys that he had with him and some of the people that I got to sit next to, you know, on game day and, you know, be in all the practices with and go through the scouting uh, reports and the scout, those guys challenge and make it better as well. So it's a little humbling whenever you leave a head coaching job and go back to being an assistant. I'm sure that's true for everybody. But in this case, it was uh, it actually it helped me quite a bit. And I was fortunate to have that opportunity. All right. So we're going to go. Uh, we call this halftime adjustments, kind of halfway point before we switch topics. Um, and, you know, and you brought up knowing everybody in your conference. And obviously, when you get to the playoffs, everybody, everybody knows Bennett, sure. right? They're going to they're going to be there. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the the, the scouting aspect uh, first from like your point of view and then uh, adjusting because obviously you guys are a very visible team, right? So, uh, you know, like I'll give an example. I know when we were at Vider, like it, not to be cocky or anything, but we knew like at times we're like, okay, we should get to this point. So when you're getting to play us, obviously you're preparing for teams and you have a high seed but then, you know, you got to get the team down the town, the road. So kind of, how are you balancing that? Hey, this, this game's important, but we also got to prepare for things down the road. Once you get to that playoff time. It's a great question. My, my philosophy has changed a lot. When I first started here, we really went hard in the practices. We wanted to stay sharp on blocking out. We wanted to, you know, keep the intensity up defensively. You know, I, I've transitioned a lot. To, we, we do a lot of shooting in the postseason now. We run we run through our opponent's stuff from a defensive standpoint. A lot of that is just more walkthrough or, you know, going through this stuff. We don't we don't play as live. We play live enough to stay sharp, but we don't overdo it with going up and down. And it's more of preserving legs, keeping people healthy, uh, you know, making sure that, uh, you know, that we if if we get beat out on the floor, it's with, the, you know, our, our you know, it's, it's not because we got somebody hurt in a practice. Or you know, we weren't we weren't doing the things that gave us the best chance to win. So I, my philosophy's changed a lot about that. We never look, overlook an opponent. Our our sectional is really really tough, and I'm sure everybody says that. But you know, it, it's it's hard to win a regional. A regional is a season's worth of work. It's getting a seed. It's being ready at the time. It's you know the regional opponents know you're coming too. They've got two weeks to get ready for you, and you know they're they they know that they, how important that all that is. And I think you know never overlook. A regional and I think just even winning that first game is I, I do think you have to have tunnel vision as cliche as it might be you have to take it one game at a time you have to have a big picture perspective obviously as far as scouting and film and you know seeing people and things like that but your focus of your players better be on what's ahead of you and if you, if you lose that you'll find out you'll get beat really especially with the with the you know in some of these sectionals where the the depth is really really strong so we uh, we focus on what's ahead of us but as far as what we do in practices, I think that's changed a lot. I had a, a team that was really good 
Uh, we were 29 and 0 at the time and we ended up getting beat in a sectional and, and we had some guys banged up and, and playing through some things. And, and, uh, you know, I was one of those things where that wasn't a reason why we lost, but I, I always look back on that year and saying, well, should I have done it a little differently? Um, and I, I don't know if it had a uh, effect or not. And then this year we did it, you know, we've for a few years, we've, you know, we've really been light and our, you know, one of our best players got hurt early on in the semifinal game and he didn't play the last, the rest of the semifinals or in the finals. And that happened in a game though. So I can live with that. If it happened in practice, I'd be kicking myself a little bit. So maybe that's a little bit of a, you know, maybe not the toughest way to, to go about it, but it really more about preservation, keeping people sharp, making sure they're shooting and that they're a hundred percent come game time. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of a bad question on my part. I wasn't, I guess I wasn't talking about the players. I said, but I was just talking about coaching mind, right? Like, yeah. you know, you're always in that coaching mind, like, okay, Hey, yeah, we're focused on this game, but we also have to, you know, but second part of the question is, so, you know, you're, you, you're getting that, getting that far at that point, everybody knows what everybody's doing, right? Like they've watched film after film. I mean, especially today, you can get film from anywhere, any place. Absolutely. You know, I mean, you guys are on TV and you know, you can, you can find it. Right. So when you're looking at that of the balance of, Hey, we're going to do what we want to do, but we also need to have these adjustments um, you know, when you're getting into that, you know, regional championship sectional, how do you cut guys going to go about that process of, okay, do we need to add this wrinkle or do we need to go back to something we did before? You know what I mean? Like trying to, uh, trying to have something in your back pocket to say, okay, they're going to take away what we do best, but how right. do we counteract that? Well, I think you definitely have to have some uh, some new specials, new sets, some adjustments, especially if you're playing against man to man. You know, I also think you just have to be really good at what you do is again, as simplistic as that might sound is that you know, they take you away. What we run, we're kind of primarily a motion offense team. We want to play in transition. You know, we want to get out and run. You know, if we don't get anything, we'll, we'll default back into some motion. We'll run some stuff. We, we Our sets are very simple. As people who scout us would probably tell you that we've still had a chance to, uh, to have success with it, even when we're scouted out well, because there's always counters, there's always second reads and third reads and things like that, that our kids are really good at because we keep it simple. They know what they're, what they're looking for. Um, you know, I think what we have a lot of trouble in a, in a state tournament and, you know, this year was a perfect example is when we see defenses that we don't normally see because trying to prepare for those defenses are really tough in, in practice when you have your scout team trying to run a defense that, they have no idea what they're running and we're trying to attack it. And we don't know the concepts, you know, it's, again, it's, it's, that's a really tough prep. Like we played against a ball press this year and they did a great job of really slowing us down. And we had trouble, you know, we thought we were prepared going in and I give all the credit to them, but the, defensively, they really did a lot to, to take us out of what we want to do and slow us down and take away shots. And so I, you know, the answer to your question, man to man, you can tweak, easily enough. You can, you can kind of pick some matchups. You can do some things that give you an advantage when you start to see different types of defenses that you haven't seen throughout the year, especially when that's all they do. And they're really good at it. It gets to be really, really tough in, in that type of pressure environment to execute and play well when you really, your, your prep for is really in the game. As much as you're, you're talking about concepts, you're not able to really execute anything against the top level defense till you see it come game time. So this, that led perfectly into the second half of our episode. So in the second half of our episode with every guest, we kind of focus on a very more microscoped topic. And, and this is a credit to you with, with each of our guests. We try to find something that we feel like 
when Todd and I do their homework, they do very well. And, um, you know, we, we looked at your, your half court man-to-man defense and studied a little bit and, and looked at some uh, statistics and, you know, you averaged about 43 points per game given up last year, which is, which is phenomenal. Um, so we, we wanted to start just from the foundation of it. So, you know, when, when you sat down to kind of design your defense and, you know, um, you know, how do you kind of go about deciding, like, these are the principles, these are the concepts, um, these are the most important things that we want to start to build from our defense from the ground up. We'll start there. When I took the job at Bennett, you know, I'd, I'd gone to a coaching clinic and a, and a division one college coach was talking about this. And it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's pretty common for everyone is building your defense to beat the best teams on your schedule, the teams you have to beat to get to win your conference or maybe to win a regional or a sectional. And I think that was where kind of I, I started is, you know, if we have to try to compete with the best teams on our schedule, how are we going to do it? And the, the answer was we man to man, because that's really all that I know. And that's what I had learned and come through at St. Pat's and, you know, run at Nazareth and, and everything else. But it was more of a packed in man to man where we're trying to keep the ball like everybody is out of the lane, you know, be packed into gaps, keep the ball in front, you know, get a hand up on a shooter, stay out of rotations. I think this is a big part of our defense is we don't want to get into rotations, not necessarily just because obviously that's bad defense and whatever else, but it puts you at a real disadvantage on the glass. I think everybody knows that when you're, when your bigs are rotating the guards and your guards are trying to block out bigs, you know, I think on the high school level, and I have no data to back this up. This is just my experience. Rebounding is such a crucial part of, of the, really the high school game. And if you can hold teams to one shot, first of all, if you can keep them out of your paint and then you can hold them to one shot, you're going to have a chance to hold some people down. And conversely, on the other end, I know I'm getting away from the question a little bit here, is we send four to the offensive boards. I think that's kind of a trademark of our program as well. And part of the reason we do that is because we play a packed in man-to-man and we want to get second shots. We're not going to get a ton of turnovers, live ball turnovers that end up being easy baskets. We get some, we get plenty, but not as many as a team that's going to get up and pressure you and get into passing lanes and full court press and things like that. We have to find a way to get more shots. And the way we do that is attack the offensive glass aggressively. And part of those two things kind of go hand in hand. The reason we play that way offensively is because the way we play defensively, which is we want to keep people out of lane. We want to contest shots. We want to, we want to get big on on the glass you know, we're, we, our defense, and again, I'm maybe I'm, I'm uh, getting away from the question. We do a lot of game planning with our defense. Not that that's unusual for most, but we don't go through as much of the drill work that we did when I first started. Instead, we go through the first two weeks where we get our defense ready. And then we play so many games that we're game prepping all the way through. So why would I play a screen defensive drill a certain way for two weeks and then change it completely based on how we're going to play a certain opponent. I, I think we have a hard time with ball screen defense. It's one of these things where, you know, we, we, we're going to tweak our ball screen defense based on the personnel of the other team. And, you know, I, again, that's just, we don't have a fallback or a default or consistent way of playing it. So why would we spend two weeks doing it one way where that, you know, we get to a Thanksgiving tournament, we might play it four different ways based on who we're playing. If that makes sense, we do a lot of game prep and a lot of game planning. And it's really difficult. I and mean, as teams start to move to zone and seem to teams start to get away because they don't want to deal with 31 games of tape breakdown and going through 10 sets and six based on a bounce plays. That's what we have to do. Cause it's really the only way that I know right now. And it's been somewhat successful for us. And we kind of keep that as part of our identity. But, you know, if you're going to talk about the backbone, it's defensive transition, keeping people out of the lane, you know, taking away personnel. I mean, I think that's another thing. We, we want to take away the two best players on the other team. You're not going to shut them down. They're too good, but you got to hold them below their averages. You got to make them earn their shots. Most teams 
their, their sets are run for those players. So you got to make the third, fourth and five, fifth guys beat you. And, you know, if they're able to do that, sometimes you tip your hat because you're playing against a really good team. But if you're going to let one of the top two players beat you, then we're not doing what we want to do philosophically. So just a, a second part of that is, you know, how do you go about deciding? And I, and I think actually our listeners will get a lot out of this piece of it. How do you go about deciding like your defensive goals? Like, do you set statistical goals? Do you set um, maybe quality goals instead of quantitative goals? You know, how do you go about deciding for your kids? Like, these are the barriers of, you know, our goals at the start of the season, what we want to do defensively. Really good question. And my answer is not going to be a very good one. Uh, we're very simplistic. I, I don't set a lot of goals. We kind of take it possession by possession is, is cliche as that might be. And maybe as corny as it sounds, that's kind of what we do. Like when you told me 43 points a game, that's the first I've heard of that. I didn't even know that until you, you actually <laughs> mentioned it. And I'll tell you part of the reason why we only gave up 43 points a game is we had really good guards last year that didn't turn the ball over. You know, if you think about points that you give up on live ball turnovers and you think about some different things, I think we were pretty good defensively last year. But it is one of those things where there's so many other factors that go in that points that you really have to break it down to see what you're giving up in your half court, you know, points per game. Um, but as far as measuring it, you know, we, again, I don't really have a concrete way of measuring it. I don't really I don't really stat it to that to that level. I mean, the stats are available. It's just more of a feel. And I probably I probably outdated that way. But I coach a lot by feel. And, you know, I, I know I don't even watch a lot of tape being honest i'm so busy watching our opponents tape there's i probably watch our tape uh, maybe three or four games while we're in the season i mean maybe that's not the best way to go about it but you know i i remember a lot of it from the live play and and if i if there's something that really bothers me i'll go back and look for specific things but i'm so focused on the next opponent you know trying to get ready defensively that i don't really go back and look as much as i should because as the game I'm experiencing, we're going through the experience, I can remember a lot of these things. If I need evidence to point it out to the players, I obviously grab tape and, and can show them because there's no better teacher than tape. But I, I'm not really caught up in the in the numbers or you know uh, the statistical part of it more so than just maybe the, the part of it where I, I feel like we're doing what we want to do based on just the flow of the game. I know that's not a great answer, but it's kind of how I go about it. Oh, it's a, it's a perfect answer because sometimes you just have to, you have to, you have to figure it out, right? You have to go by feel and figure it out, especially in game. So you, you kind of talked about pairing your offense and defense. So I'm going to tweak this question a little bit uh, in, in terms of scouting, right? You mentioned like, okay, they're going to do this on the pick and roll. We got to try to defend it a little bit better. Um, and you, you're kind of changing as you go of evolving or, or tweaking what you do. Um, I, I guess, you know, kind of how do you prepare your players for that? Like, do you maybe, especially early season, kind of do those different situations and prep of so that, so they have an idea, at least if you have to go to it, Hey, we're, we're going to go to this or, you know, you have a, you kind of have a bank of things we, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, your opponents and you know, who you're going to play and, you know, you play some of the similar teams. So how do you go about that process of, you know, not just throwing it out there and saying, we got to do this when they haven't actually done it. Exactly. The first two weeks are huge. When you're installing your defense, you have to go through a lot of the, the scenarios you're going to see the most, you know, so that they have a familiarity with how you want to do it. 
Um, as you go on later in the season with the amount of game prepping we do with the amount of the, the walkthroughs and the prep and practice, you see a lot of the same things consistently throughout the course of the season. So by February, you might guard uh, Spain ball screen action a lot better than you guard it in November, obviously, because you've seen it and you prep for it so much. But I think you have to have a base defense in, like like you mentioned, so that you're not just hitting with them with concepts without having any idea or having practiced at full speed and things like that. So our first two weeks are huge on defensive, you know, installing our defense with how we want to play screen defense and the basic concepts we're going to see the most. And then we try to tweak it week to week based on what we have in a scouting report and what we know we're going to see. And there's so many different variations offensively now, not to mention defensively, that it's really, really tough. Um, really tough to get in with the, the 31 games is, uh, is different than what it was for most of my career. And it, it might not sound like a lot, but it's, you add five to six more games in or whatever it would happen to be, you know, it's, it makes prep even more difficult and a lot more now goes emphasis in my, and our program goes into game prep on the varsity level than, you know, in areas I wish, and I, I regret this. I wish there was more development time during the, the course of the season, but I think we get so caught up in the games that we don't want to give up an easy basket in a game that we spend more time going through based on our balance plays than maybe we should. We should probably spend a little bit more time on things that are uh, long-term beneficial, long-term like skill development. So something uh, you and I know many of the same people and something I heard from many of those people was um, just your extreme detail and attention to scouting. So I really wanted to kind of dig in a little bit to, to some defensive scouting you know, when, when you're watching an opponent, you know, and you're watching maybe, especially when we get in the January and I'm sure you like I and Todd and others, you know, you, you kind of maybe watch maybe a little bit of a, a film in November and a little bit of a film in December, and then maybe some current film, you know, but what are you looking for, you know, defense on the defensive side of the ball? What are you looking for against a, a, another team's offense? Are you looking for maybe the the one or two things they do best? Are you looking for maybe one or two of their top players? Are you looking for the things they do consistently? Maybe kind of break down for us what you're doing defensive wise in the scouting report. Well, we definitely want to take them out of their sets and their base and out of bounds, at least the ones that they run, uh, you know, the, the most that you're going to see the most consistently. I know that might be a little old school, but it, it bothers me when teams run, you know, consistent sets like, like, and we do the same thing offensively and teams can take us out of our stuff. And hopefully we have secondary actions and reads and whatever else to offset that. But like, we really want to take a team out of their, out of what they do in the half court. I mean, I think that's a point of emphasis and definitely based on out of bounds. You know, there's times I've thought about transitioning into zone a little bit because it would ease the amount of work, honestly, getting, getting into that is like, I, I've talked to some other coaches that are great coaches and they're great zone coaches and they love it because they transitioned into, they don't have to worry about going through six base and out of balance plays every time they play a game. They, they play their base defense and it's effective to take people out. But to get back to your question, sets based on out of bounds for sure, silent out of bounds. And then something I, I alluded to earlier, uh, we want to take out the two best players. Now, again, how we do that, we might just play our base defense with more of an emphasis on those players. There might be times where you have to full deny somebody or, you know, obviously run two guys at somebody depending on, you know, how good they are and, you know, how they're hurting you and what your matchups are and things like that. We don't switch much defensively. I, I should have mentioned that earlier. We're pretty much a straight man-to-man -man, uh, team without a lot of switching, and that makes it difficult when you're trying to break down people's sets as well because if you switch it, you could probably take people out with a lot of that. But my philosophy is a little bit old school. Like, I don't want to play through the mismatches after we switch. It's more of a secondary outlook than really the primary outlook where you might be able to take them out of their sets by just switching it all. 
Uh, but then you might have a mismatch. And in the past, our teams, our third guy couldn't guard the, the best player on the other team. We would be, you know, we might have taken them out of their sets, but we couldn't guard the rest of the possession. If that makes sense. Um, and we still kind of alluded to that. We're doing a little more switching, especially in some ball screen actions and things. But we, we're pretty much a traditional straight man to man. You know, we want our best defensive player guarding the best player on the other team, and you know, vice versa. And we want anybody that we have to, you know, that we might have to hide defensively or might have some trouble with the matchup. We want to make sure, you know, that we're putting them in positions where they're not breaking the team down, or that we're giving them help if uh, if the matchup is uh, more than you know they're able to take on individually and uh, that type of thing. So taking out the best players is, is a major major part of our scouting report, and also we want to take take away now some 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 teams run so much stuff and they're, they're so good at it it's just impossible to take people out of 15 sets it'd be a little naive with to think that but um you know the ones that you see the most you definitely want to have an, an idea of what you want to do defensively so i want to follow a little bit because i loved your comment on taking some of the best players especially at the high school level right it's probably a little bit easier the higher you get it's it's harder right because every how you get the everybody's good right but what are you specifically looking for um, when you're taking away those best players, are you taking away like actions? Are you looking for tendencies? Are you, you know, maybe they like to cross and go, you know, a move, whatever it may be. Well, I think one thing I learned, and I keep alluding to this, learned back when I learned how to originally scout with Coach Bailey and back with the assistance that he had was the attention to detail was so important. And I hope that's something I've carried with me throughout the course of my uh, my career like we'll put on the board before we play a team the, the personnel report and we'll go through attention to detail and usually i'm the one that gives it if it's my scout through what i see personal tendencies of each player if somebody doesn't shoot it well if somebody only goes left i mean some of the basic things like that you know things that would help if you're on that particular player but not only just the individual matchup but as a, a team if you're in the gap and you know somebody who goes left you're in the gap to, you know, that person's left and you got to be, you got to know the ball's coming your way. Just simple things like that. I think we're, you know, know your personnel, know their personnel. I think the KTP you know, aspect of it is of really knowing the other team's personnel helps a lot. And honestly, we don't watch tape of our opponents very often. It's very, very rare. They, they'll come in blindly and they'll trust, uh, they'll trust our, our scouting report to the point where they'll take it and execute it, which is very gratifying because, you know, it, it says a lot about kids that are willing to do that. Oftentimes, I don't even want them to watch tape of their opponents because they form their own conclusions, as silly as that sounds. You know, awareness is a good thing. But, you know, if you tell somebody that they're, uh, you know, that this player can do this, this and this, and they watch tape and it, and it doesn't match up with the tape that they've watched, sometimes it uh, contradicts your message. And, you know, our kids, uh, we, we don't watch a lot of tape as a group of our opponents. We just more talk through tendencies and then we go through on the floor, you know, the things that we want to try to take away, which is usually sets and based on our bounds. I'm being repetitive. I apologize. But those, really, it's that simple. Those are the things that we're looking for in a scouting report and, and trying to take a team out of their actions. So uh, let's get into how you assess defense. Um, you know, kind of what do you, you know, obviously points, right? Like that's the ultimate goal. Like you score more points than the team you win. Sure. But. Um, you know, what kind of those keys are you looking at to, um, say, yeah, we're doing good on this. We're not doing great on this. Maybe it's points in the paint. Maybe it's straight line, whatever it may be. Yeah. I think you just hit it, hit the nail on the head for what I'm looking for. I think it's, you know, I, I know it's, everyone talks about it now, but you know, 
paint touches. I know that's kind of what everybody's talking about in the game right now. But if the ball's getting in the paint consistently, then we're not our the entire design of our defense is to keep the ball in front of us and keep it out of the lane. You know, if you're extending your defense and you're a pressure defense, you're going to give up paint touches. You know, you that's going to happen. But you also might turn teams over. Our whole design is to keep people out of the paint. So if the ball's getting in the paint, you know, you're you're we're not doing what we want to do. And I think the killer on the high school level, and I have no statistical you know, data to back this up is, is the inside out threes are a backbreaker. I mean, everybody can shoot the three point shot. And these are threes aren't coming from around the defense. They're coming from draw kick. They're coming from, you know, uh, you know, again, we don't see as much post action as we did back in the day, but the ball going inside and, and people relocating, you know, if you're going to let the ball get in the paint, you're going to get the ball get inside your defense, you're going to give up shots. And it's not just the points in the paint. It's the easy catch and shoot threes as a result of collapse in the defense, that result. So we really want to keep the ball in front of us. And so if I was looking at something, if I was going to statistically grade something, how many times does the ball get in the paint or how many possessions does the ball get in the paint, you know, off a of drive, off a of cut, whatever, off of maybe a post feed, whatever. And if it's getting in the paint consistently, then we're not, we're not playing defense the way we're supposed to play defense. So I wanted to kind of transition into our last two segments um, the first one we call 30 second timeout, you know, it's your opportunity to kind of, uh, have the floor to talk about whatever you feel is important to you. Uh, you could talk about your family, your program, something you want our listeners to know about, um, any topic you want to discuss. Um, very often, this is where the guests turn the table on Todd and I ask Todd and I a question, uh, but it, it's your opportunity. And, and as we say to all of our guests, there is no referee in your 30 second timeout telling you uh, you got to get out. Uh, it's a very rough 30 seconds. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, I might go longer than 30 then. I uh, First, I, I probably want to just reiterate some things I might have mentioned just when we were, we were talking earlier is, you know, just the role of uh, career assistant coaches are is unbelievably important. And I think that that's part of what makes the high school game so great is there's so many of them. If you look at the various programs that are selfless and really are in it for the right reasons and they make our jobs easier as a head coach. So I, I just obviously want to express a little appreciation for that. Also, uh, you know, you're looking at, at things like, like I mentioned this before too, there's some really good coaches out there that maybe don't get their, their due as much because maybe the win loss record isn't, you know, it, it, you know, one of those things where that would make it jump off the page where I think, you know, as a, as a coach who's trying to learn all the time, you watch the attention to detail at some of these guys, uh, coach with, and it's really, really impressive. I think you can learn a lot from watching everybody, not just, you know, the, the teams that win a lot and things like that. I think there's, you know, there's some really good coaches in that regard. Thirdly, officials, you know, again, I think uh, as, as uh, high school coaches, we have a responsibility to try to keep uh, growing the official pool. I mean, I think it's really a, a difficult uh, time right now with what we've been through the last few years and as officials are getting older, we need good young officials to get in our game, to keep our game going in the right direction. I think it's really, really important that as coaches, not only we work to try to, you know, recruit if we can to get guys there, and we, we give these guys the respect and the, the credit that they deserve to try to move them up to when they deserve it and they earn it to move them up to uh, the, the food chain here to get them opportunities for a, a, an official to get a regional game, then a sectional game and things like that is really a big deal for them. Uh, and I think we need to, to do a lot to recognize these guys. And, you know, they're, they're working for very little money. If they really were doing it for money, they would just work, you know, six games at the junior high or they would go work a college game, which obviously we need great officials in college as well. 
but I, I, I do think we have a, a responsibility to, to you know, try to grow the game in regard to officials. I think that's just, it's something in the next 10 years that could really be an issue for us if we don't keep, you know, uh, finding, finding new officials that are really committed, like, like the guys that have been for years. And then I know I'm way over my 30 seconds, but I, uh, I also, I, I think something that's really been helpful for me is I get a chance to see my, my wife coach uh, all spring. My wife's a softball coach at Benedictine university and, and, uh, she had a really successful career there. I was a really good player there. And it, as a, as a coach in another sport, it's, it's, I think it's been really helpful for me, even though I never really realized it until I started thinking about it, you know, uh, recently as you get a, a chance to see another team up close, you know, consistently and, you know, how uh, things that, they, you know, in the team dynamic and how people prepare for cert certain situations and things like that is like, you know, I, I may be unique in that regard, but, you know, if there's coaches that have a chance to, you know, uh, you know, see other sports, I think you can learn a lot about just the team dynamic and, and other things and how people approach situations by, by really paying attention. So sorry for the long winded 30 seconds. It was probably three minutes and 30 seconds, but I appreciate the opportunity. Well, actually, Todd, before we go on to quick hitters, I don't think we've ever asked a follow in a uh, 30 second time. I, I had a follow too. So that's good. Go I, my, my quick follow and let's see if it's the same, but my quick follow is, you know, with, with you being a, a head coach that consistently goes deep into the playoffs and your season is, you know, we all know high school basketball season is long and, you know, then your wife coaching in the spring and, and her season is quite long, you know, kind of how, how do you balance that? How do you guys balance that in, in family time and, and time with each other? And, um, you know, we, we've talked to coaches a lot about work-life balance, but what do you do when there's two head coaches for work-life balance? It's really fun, but it's really challenging. There's no doubt about it. Like her, our seasons overlap. I think she starts practicing right around February 1st. And hopefully we're playing to the beginning of March or, you know, at least to the end of February. And she's right into her season. And as a matter of fact, last year we were fortunate enough to, uh, you know, to make it to the final game. And, and my wife was with her team in Florida. So we've been lucky to get there. We've been in the final game three times and twice she was, uh, she was in Florida with her team. You know, I just, one of those things where, you know, obviously uh, a great experience for our kids and for me personally, but you know, difficult because she's at every game during the year and not able to be there because she's got her own and rightfully so her own commitment, but getting back to your question, I think, uh, you know, we, our, our household is pretty much a season and, you know, right when she's done, we get a couple of weeks and we're right back into June basketball. And you guys know how that is. That's pretty much a, a month extension of the season where you're gone the whole, the whole month. So we basically have about six weeks at the end of the summer where she's not in fall ball or in her season, or I'm not in my season or in, in obviously the June, the summer season. So it's, it's difficult, but you know, you got to pay attention to it. And, uh, and I think it's, uh, it's rewarding, but you know, we haven't been on a, a Thanksgiving Christmas spring break ever together because we're all, we're always in season, you know? So it's uh we give up a little bit, but the reward is much greater than anything that we would have to give up in order for it. Well, I, I don't have necessarily a follow up, but go Tide Camp's wife is a tremendous coach. I was at, I played baseball, Benedictine. I've been there for a long time. She, she's a great coach, but I, I think what you said, coach, is so important as far as the family dynamic, right? You know, there, there's, there's give and take. Uh, you know, basketball's basketball's the longest season by far. Right. Like, especially, especially in Illinois. And, uh, you know, well, I'll give a shout out to my wife. She lets me, she lets me go coach and, and, and do all that. But I think that's what, what you said is so important of the dynamic of it, of just making it work. And, you know, you get, you got to do these things and it's a passion that you love and, and, you know, 
going from there. So well, I think I think something too, really quickly, it's it's tougher for us in our generation, the, the three of us and everybody else is, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it might have been easier. Now with technology and cell phones and different things, is you're always available to everybody. There really is no off season when you're a high school basketball coach or a college coach for that matter. And you know, you're even though you're present with family time. That phone's not far away or the computer's not too far away. And, and I think it's a little bit more challenging than it was when I started. So, you know, it's, I think it's something I need to do a better job of being more mindful to that when you're actually with your family, that you're present and you're not, you know, in a couple of different places mentally, if that makes sense. I, I just actually noticed that I'm uh, the only uh, non-Benedictine uh, person, I think, uh, non-Lyle in this chat between Todd and his wife and you and your wife. I'm I'm outnumbered here. Yeah, my, my, my wife. Yeah, we got we got a little bit of the team roots. Nice. So let's uh let's go into quick hitters. Uh Todd always likes to tell our guests sometimes this is where the wheels fall off. This is just an opportunity for us to have a little fun at the end. Um so these these are always very heavy hitting questions. So the first one um is uh in the morning if you had a choice are you going muffin bagel or donut bagel and donuts if i can i, I actually i, should, I guess <laughs> if i had to pick one if i had to pick one i guess i'd go bagel but i usually there's times i, I do both i'm not gonna lie so we'll, we'll go bagel okay what's the what's the donut then? that that there's that's a tough question you know what chocolate frosted cake donut i in a bagel with cream cheese it's probably not the best thing for my health long term but it's uh it's it delicious. Does, does the trick. It does the trick for sure. Yeah. All right. So next question. Why are, why is Bennett the Red Wings? What is the story behind the Red Wings? That is a great question. And I might get fired after they listen to this because I have no idea. I wish I, I wish I knew. I don't know. It was way back to back when the school was St. Procopius way back 60 plus right. years ago. But I, uh, I really have no idea. I should probably find out. I guess I've got something to do tomorrow. There you go. Um, okay. For you, you know, and, and this could be high school, college, pro, whoever you want to use, who, who for you are, are one or two or, or three of the best defensive coaches in basketball right now? Do you feel like there's so many good ones I'm trying to pick? It's been tough. One that I really liked when I was young growing up because uh, I went to school in, in Wisconsin, right outside of Green Bay was with Dick Bennett. And I know for a lot of younger coaches, they may not know who he is. They know his son, Tony Bennett, who's at Virginia, but you know, he, he really, the program that they had at Wisconsin Green Bay, I went to school right down the street from there while they were in their heyday. So, that they, I mean, the way they played defense was, I think, was really impressive. And even though I haven't always necessarily had that style, um, I think that that's, I really enjoyed watching his teams play, you know, defensively. I thought they, they did an unbelievable job and gave themselves a chance to beat teams that maybe they shouldn't have beaten when they got the NCAA tournament in some of those places. Uh, if you gave me a defense here, I could give you a really good high school coach that runs it. You know, if you want to talk high school, um, there's so many good defensive coaches on our level. You know, you look at some of the guys that run the, the ball press, some of the guys who run the one three one zone. And, you know, there's some man to man guys that really tweak, uh, really tweak their, their, you know, they're based on game plan. And there's guys that switch everything and just take you out of things that way. So I know I'm not really answering your question. I guess I'm uh, avoiding the question. Dick but Bennett? Yeah, I, Dick Bennett would probably be the guy that going back to when I first started that I. Uh, that was a guy that, you know, and again, he's not somebody that's going to resonate with the, uh, the older coaches, maybe not the, not the younger coaches. A goal you want to accomplish outside of coaching? Uh, be a better teacher. By that, I mean, 
I feel like we have two full-time jobs when we're high school coaches yep. and we teach full-time. And I think eventually when the coaching is done and that's not to try to take anything away from the teaching now, I mean, we're teachers first and coaches second. I think everybody subscribes to that. There's no doubt, but it'd be nice at some point to, you know, just if you, when you just teach it, to see, you know, I, I just feel like, uh, you know, when you didn't have that second part of it, that you could just devote all your time just to the teaching part of it that I think, uh, and obviously I'd be a better teacher. At least that's, that's what I hope. All right, last one. I don't know where I got this one from, but you could tell I was in a leisurely uh, mindset when I wrote this. But if you had a choice and you're looking to relax, would you rather fish, golf, or take a nap? Uh, that's uh, that's a tough one to answer. If anyone if anyone who's seen me play golf knows, uh, it's pretty brutal. So I, uh, you know, golf would probably be out. Uh, fishing, terrible. Haven't done that in 35, 40 years. Take a nap would probably win by default. So I guess I, I take a nap. We'll go with. Yeah. Uh, so what, 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 if you didn't have any of those options, what would you do then? Uh, great. Uh, oh my, I, you know what? That's, I, I don't know. I, maybe, who knows? Maybe learn how to play pickleball. How's that? Ooh, that pickleball. Getting, yeah, that's that's yeah. a rage right now. Pickleball. It's yeah. hot. <laughs> I'm getting to that age where pickleball might be the, uh, the way to go. Yeah. Well, Coach, we can't thank you enough for joining us tonight. Uh, a tremendous, tremendous stuff from a tremendous program, tremendous coach, tremendous coaching tree, right? Like, you know, like we said, we had, we've had a lot of St. Pat's alums uh, on here. And, uh, you know, it was awesome to have you on. And, you know, we've learned a lot. So I can't appreciate it enough. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the After the Timeout podcast in partnership with the IBCA. Please be sure to rate us on whatever platform you are listening and give us a five-star rating. For more show content and updates, please follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout. As always, thank you for listening. Tune in next time for more content on the court, off the court, and anything in between.